Hello and welcome to What Catholics Believe. This is a special introduction to the program that we are about to air. We just uh, recorded that program a matter of days ago, and in that uh, most recent program, we discussed the letter that Archbishop Vigano had written to President Trump. And uh, one of the concerns that, uh, that Father Jenkins shared during that video was the fact that uh, Archbishop Vigano did not, e did not address some of the, the problems, the more uh, root problems uh, that we face in our country and in the church uh, with, with Vatican II and the problems that stemmed from that. Little did we know uh, that the very day that we recorded that program, Archbishop Vigano actually had uh, posted a, a letter addressing those very concerns that Father Jenkins had mentioned. So, Father Jenkins, we, we both have that, that letter in front of us now, a couple of days later after we recorded that program, and uh, reading through it, this is fascinating. I, I think you even used the term earth-shattering, some of the things that, that Archbishop Vigano ha has said here, and just to kind of Give give our, our viewers a, a flavor of this. I'm sure we can we can link to it and they can read through this themselves. And I think we would both even, even, definitely recommend that. Even in the <clears throat> thought that uh, expressed the idea that Archbishop Vigano was reading our mind. That's right. The very, <clears throat> very so same I mean, day. the very time we're issuing the program, he's issuing this letter. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And I mentioned that the problem what troubled me about his letter to uh, to uh, President Trump is yeah. more what he didn't say than what he did. And lo and behold, I think in this letter now. Uh, dated June 9th, mm -hmm. he has said it and said it very well and very forcefully. So I'm actually rather enthusiastic about this. Yeah, definitely. Uh, so I, I wanted to share that. I wanted to make sure we're fair to Archbishop Vigano, but I also wanted to say that I, I find it very encouraging that now he's come out and said exactly what is happening, what has happened in the church or to the church, right, because of the modernists. And uh, he's now laying it on the line. Mm -hmm. And frankly, I mean, what I find in his letter here is he's acknowledging that the criticisms were legitimate. He's acknowledging that that is, that is exactly right. Mm -hmm. and, um, and I say that not because we want to crow about that, but because the way he expresses it makes it very clear to me that he really, he really understands the significance uh, of our concerns now. And he actually, actually acknowledges, acknowledges the concerns that the traditional Catholics have had all of these years. Mm -hmm. <clears throat> and that he has basically just kind of <clears throat> swept them aside. Mm -hmm. And we'll actually get a chance to uh, maybe quote some of his words here, as you say, Tom. Yeah, and Father, how, how much <clears throat> humility did it take to write this? I mean, it, it's kind of almost like an, an apology of sorts where he, he, you know, he talks about just how the evil fruits of Vatican II, and he, and he says, <clears throat> He actually you know, says in here, the operation of, this operation of intellectual honesty requires a great humility. And so, I mean, he actually he, he speaks knows, of yeah. it as being a rather humbling experience. Yeah. By the way, if you don't mind my mentioning this, we're going to link to um, this letter. It was it was actually published online on Marco Tosati's website, Stilum Curie, and they they also refer to the news site Chiesa e Post Concilio. <clears throat> but that will be clear in this link we give, so people can go in and read exactly what. Archbishop Vigano says, and they can read it in the original Italian too if they'd like, but it's in English and French as well. Mm. So uh, this, these the copies we have are in English, mm -hmm. but I wanted to check the Italian to make sure it's accurate. <clears throat> I believe it is. This Italian, this translation is done 
by Giuseppe Pellegrino, and I don't know uh, him, but uh, I'm sure that Marco Tosati would be sure that this is an accurate translation. So, in any case, that's what we're referring to now. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Well, Father. Uh, by the way, if you don't mind me yeah. mentioning this, <clears throat> this is headlined Vigano Writes on Vatican II. <clears throat> and basically, the title of Archbishop Vigano's letter is We Are at the Rede Rationem. Literally, meaning we are at the point of rendering an account. Rendering an account, as it were. So he's at the point of rendering an account. So. So anyway, I'm sorry, Tom. <laughs> Go right ahead. No, that's okay. Would you would you like like to uh, to read any any of these these sections from here, Father? I know there's there's a lot of a lot of poignant uh, well, quotes I, that could be. Pulled I'd like to read the whole letter, actually. Yeah. <laughs> but uh, it's not that I agree with everything. Absolutely, I mean there are certain things still I think worthy of discussion. Mm -hmm. But here's what he said uh, from his own point of view, and I think that the program that people are going to see in a few minutes, which was done three days ago or four days ago now. Uh, before this letter actually appeared and was made public, <clears throat> I think this actually strengthens the point that was made in the program. That the, the concerns we expressed here in that program were exactly right, and I think Bishop, Archbishop Vigano actually acknowledges that in this letter. He says, there comes a moment in our life when through the disposition of providence, we are faced with a decisive choice for the future of the church and for our eternal salvation. I speak of the choice between understanding the error into which practically all of us have fallen, almost always without evil intentions, and wanting to continue to look the other way or justify ourselves. That's quite a statement. Yeah. He says, we have also committed the error, among others, of considering our interlocutor interlocutors as people who despite the difference of their ideas and their faith, were still motivated by good intentions and who would be willing to correct their errors if they could open up to our faith. Together with numerous council fathers, we thought of ecumenism as a process, an invitation that calls dissidents to the one church of Christ, idolaters and pagans to the one true God and the Jewish people to the promised Messiah. But from the moment it was theorized in the conciliar commissions, ecumenism was configured in a way that was in direct opposition to the doctrine previously expressed by the magisterium. So he says, I mean, we have these good intentions on our own part. We, we kind of assume good intentions on the part of those we are engaging in ecumenism. But he said, not so. He said, we have to face the fact that the good intentions did not pan out, you know. And he goes on and he explains there why. He talks about, he really is talking about the problem with the council. Now, a few days before the program we did, we did a few days ago, and a few days before that, Archbishop Vigano for the first time said, we have to look at the problems of Vatican II. I'd never seen him notice that before, but I didn't know it would come to this, Okay. But he says, we thought these were excesses. We explained these things away. We thought they were exaggerations or something. Now he's over that. Now he's past all that. He says, no, no, it wasn't that. He says, it goes a lot deeper than that. <clears throat> he says, if the image of an infernal divinity, think of that, infernal divinity, 
was able to enter into St. Peter's, he's talking about mm -hmm. Peter's Basilica, he's talking about the smoke of Satan, right? Mm -hmm. This is part of a crescendo which the other side foresaw from the beginning. Numerous practicing Catholics, and perhaps also in a majority of Catholic clergy, are today convinced that the Catholic faith is no longer necessary for eternal salvation. They believe that the one and triune God revealed to our fathers is the same as the God of Mohammed. Already 20 years ago, we heard this repeated from pulpits and Episcopal cathedras, cathedrae, but recently we hear it being affirmed with emphasis even from the highest throne, capitalized throne. He's talking about Francis, he says. Yeah. Now he says, we know, we know where all of this is coming from, he says. Okay. And he goes on and says, it is disconcerting that few people are aware of this race towards the abyss and that few realize the responsibility of the highest levels of the church in supporting these anti-Christian ideologies, as if the church's leaders want to guarantee that they have a place and a role on the bandwagon of aligned thought. And it is surprising that people persist in not wanting to investigate the root causes of the present crisis limiting themselves to deploring the present excesses as if they were not the logical and inevitable consequences of a plan orchestrated decades ago. And then he goes on, and this one paragraph, I think, really lays it on the line. If the Pachamama could be adored in a church, we owe it to Dignitatis Humani, the last document of Vatican II. We owe it to that, he says. If we have a liturgy that is Protestantized and at times even paganized, we owe it to the revolutionary action of Monsignor Annibale Bonini and to the post-conciliar reforms. If the Abu Dhabi Declaration was signed, we owe it to Nostra Aetate, right, documented from Vatican II. If we have come to the point of delegating decisions to the bishops' conferences, even in grave violation of the Concordat, as happened in Italy, we owe it to collegiality and to its updated version, synodality. So here he's talking about what began at Vatican II and what is now being consummated by Francis. Right? So he's not pulling any punches here. Thanks to synodality, we found ourselves with Amoris Laetitia, right? the apostolic exhortation of Francis, his first apostolic ex exhortation having to look for a way to prevent what was obvious to everyone from appeasing that this document, <clears throat> prepared by an impressive organizational machine, intended to legitimize communion for the divorced and cohabiting, just as Querida Amazonia, Querida Amazonia will be used to legitimate women priests, as in the recent case of an Episcopal vicaress in Freiburg and the abolition of sacred celibacy. The prelates who sent the dubia to Francis, in my opinion, demonstrated the same pious ingenuousness, he says. Interesting. The same pious ingenuousness. Thinking that Bergoglio, when confronted with the reasonably argued contestation of the error, would understand, correct the heterodox points, and ask for forgiveness. <laughs> The council was used to le legitimize the most aberrant, aberrant doctrinal deviations, he says, the most daring liturgical innovations, and the most unscrupulous abuses, 
All while authority remains silent. And this is something he says about himself. He says, look, I went, I looked at that authority and I trusted that. And that was a mistake, he said, because that authority led me in con actually contrary to the good of the church and the needs of the church. Here's what he says. I confess it with serenity and without controversy. I was one of the many people who, despite many perplexities and fears, which today have proven to be absolutely legitimate, trusted the authority of the hierarchy with unconditional obedience. In reality, I think that many people, including myself, did not initially consider the possibility that there could be a conflict between obedience to an order of the hierarchy and fidelity to the church herself. What made tangible this unnatural, indeed, I would even say perverse separation between the hierarchy and the church, between obedience and fidelity, was certainly this most recent pontificate. He said, this, this brought to light, this exposed it, he said, right? So, uh, I mean, this is a pretty hard-hitting document and a very powerful admission. Exactly what we're expressing in the program that people are about to see. So, um, I know there would be those who would watch the program we did a few days ago and say, well, look, you know, you're criticizing me, you know, look what he came out with. And I would say, yes, but what he came out is, without it, is exactly acknowledging the reality of what we're saying here mm -hmm. and the concerns we had. And we are, I mean, I'm, I'm rejoicing that he, he has said this. Now, that doesn't mean that I totally agree with everything, you know, and the legitimacy of the, of the holy orders. I mean, the, the Novus Ordo, I'm, I'm not just accepting all of that carplasha. But here we have someone who for years has been um, actually uh, trying to stand up for the truth, but being held back by some, something, some obstacle in the way from speaking the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth. And that was his allegiance to Vatican II. And right now he's actually, actually um, pierced that illusion now. And he's saying so. He's acknowledging so. This operation, he says, of intellectual honesty requires a great humility. First of all, in recognizing that for decades we have been led into error in good faith by people who established an authority, have not known how to watch over and guard the flock of Christ, some for the sake of living quietly, some because of having too many commitments, some out of convenience, and finally some in bad faith and even, or even malicious intent. These last ones who have betrayed the church must be identified, taken aside, invited to amend, and if they do not repent, they must be expelled from the sacred enclosure. This is how a true shepherd acts, he says, who has the well-being of the sheep at heart. Now, he doesn't mention modernists. He doesn't mention that I see here modernism anywhere, which is a shame. I believe I saw it Did you some, see it somewhere in there, Father. Okay, well, I'm glad because... You know, I mean, he, he, he doesn't get to the point where he's sick. We have to go back and we have to retrace our steps and, and realize where we took the wrong turn here. And we've got to get back to Catholic tradition in its entirety and re regret. We've got to reject this, this monstrous construct of Vatican II and all of its fundamental principles mm -hmm. as wrong and as anti-Catholic. Hopefully in the future he will do that. 
that he says, just as I honestly and serenely obeyed questionable orders 60 years ago, believing that they represented the loving voice of the church, so today, with equal serenity and honesty, I recognize that I have been deceived, he says, that I have been deceived. Being coherent today by persevering in error would represent a wretched choice and would make me an accomplice in this fraud. Now, that's pretty interesting. And then he talks about this revolution that has been carried out. He says, this is the triumph of the Masonic plan in preparation for the kingdom of the Antichrist. Pretty strong words, I said. Mm -hmm. yeah. And he goes on and he talks about Bergoglio's supporters wait for his words as a signal to which they respond with a series of initiatives that have already been prepared and organized for some time. And uh, bringing that into line with the Masonic plan, which had been ha hatched for the church in the past, again, you know, he's, he's really on the track here, I'd say so. Mm -hmm. So anyway, um, he ends by referring to the fact that we just had the Feast of the Most Holy Trinity, in which we pray the, the uh, Athanasian Creed, the Symbolum Athanasium, as Athanasianum, the Athanasian Creed, in which we read and with which he concludes his letter. He says, the first words of that now disappeared Symbolum, that is the creed of St. Athanasius, remain inscribed in letters of gold. Quicumque vult salvus esse ante omnia opus est uteriat catholicam fidem, quam nisi quisque integram inviolatamque sevaverit, absque dubio in eternum peridit. Translates it. Whosoever wishes to be saved, before all things it is necessary that he hold the Catholic faith. For unless a person shall have kept this faith whole and inviolate, without doubt he shall eternally perish. And that's how he closes his letter. So, the signs of Carlo Maria Vigano. So, you know, our prayers for Archbishop Vigano, uh, certainly, uh, uh, I would say, well warranted, right? Mm -hmm. uh, both past and future prayers present prayers, so I ask everyone to pray for him. Yeah. And with that introduction, I just say, uh, I think it is possible to understand now the show that we did a few days ago in, in a very interesting light. Yeah, sounds good. Well, Father, more positive and hopeful. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, Father, I mean, as you always say, the, the most, you know, the, the uh, most important thing is just this first step where we just, you know, ask the question uh, about this, uh, the whole Vatican II and... Uh, and all the problems that came from that. And it seems that in this letter, Archbishop Vigano does at least that. So we will certainly, like you well, said. I don't know if he's ever watched this program. Yeah. But uh, I would say whether he's watched it or not, he's certainly responding to it. That's right. Well, <laughs> Father, we will continue to keep him in our prayer. So I thank you very much for that. Well, you're welcome, Tom. Thank you. Yeah. And uh, God bless us all. Yeah. yeah. All of our viewers. And uh, we ask for God's continued blessing on Archbishop Vigano that he... Uh, He's taken a very, very, probably the most difficult step of all, right? right. To acknowledge I've been deceived. Yep. That's it, modernist. Uh, deceived by modernism, but no more. <laughs> but no more, right? Yeah. 
Well, with that, enjoy the show. The following program was made possible by the generosity of those who have determined to hold fast to the true Roman Catholic religion, as expounded by the Roman Catholic Church before the disasters of Vatican II and the so-called New Mass. Hello and welcome to What Catholics Believe. I'm your host, Thomas Nagley. With me tonight is Father William Jenkins. He's a member of the Society of St. Pius V. He's also the pastor of Immaculate Conception Church right here in Norwood, Ohio. Hello, Father. How are you? Very fine, Tom. Thank you. And yourself? Doing well. Thanks for being here. Absolutely. Thank you. Yep. Father... By the way, man. Sure. A fine gentleman, a traditional Catholic gentleman named Daniel Vikas. Mm. Mr. Daniel Vitkus just passed away this morning, so I ask everyone to keep him in your prayers. Very good man. I had a, a rough time for the last six years with the effects of a stroke. And uh, it's as though he, when he finally got home after all of this, uh, was able to go home, that he must have felt that he could, he could go like it. Uh, so I, uh, he uh, he left this this world. Uh, his soul left this world, uh, surrounded by family, which he could never have done in a nursing home or a hospital or anything these days. So uh, I thank for that grace for his family and for him. Please keep him in your prayers, son. definitely, and his family. Yeah, definitely. Okay, well, uh, Father, there, there's been a lot of talk this week about uh, Archbishop uh, Vigano, a familiar name to this program, and he. Uh, Apparently, just, just recently, I believe this uh, past Sunday, Holy Trinity Sunday, he published an open letter to President Trump. Um, it says this letter has been uh, making its rounds. It's been getting a decent amount of, of press, and we've had a few questions about it, Father, uh, just your, your opinion on it generally. But uh, in particular, we had one email that I'd like to read uh, from a viewer who says, Father Jenkins, I'm curious to get your take on the Vigano letter to President Trump. Uh, this viewer says, in my estimation, it reveals that Vigano is a convinced modernist with conservative leanings who reduces religion to mere politics in his identification of, quote, the children of light, end quote, with the everyday secular proletarian. So, Father, what is your thought on that? And uh, just in general, your response to uh, Archbishop Carlo Vigano's open letter to President Trump? Well, uh, Carlo Maria Vigano. Uh, Archbishop Vigano is a, is a Novus Ordo bishop. I mean, he's Novus Ordo ordained and uh, and consecrated. He uh, was the Apostolic Nuncio to the United States of America. Okay, so a letter that he writes to the President of the United States it has a certain character to it because of his living here experience here in America, living in Washington D.C. Um. So it's, in a sense, I mean, he has more standing than most other churchmen, you know, because of his involvement with the United States and the United States government at very high levels. But um, when I read uh, Archbishop Vigano's letter, I, I had that same impression that there was something amiss. Now, I, I do have a certain re regard for him. I, I think he has... I mean, I had always had the impression that he had the faith, and 
Just recently, he came out and said that we have to examine the problems with Vatican II. That's the first I've heard him speak like that, mm -hmm. at least. I mean, he might have talked like that. He might have been talking like that for years, but it hasn't made the press that I've read anyway. So when he points out there are problems with Vatican II, it makes me think that there is some light penetrating into the, the darkness of the Nivis Ordo uh, thought process. Um, but uh, I don't know what it means in the practical order or whether it means anything. But um, anyway, but when uh, Archbishop Vigano talks about the children of light mm -hmm. being the clear majority, right. I, I mean, I get the impression as though he's saying, well, here's what he says here. The children of light constitute the most conspicuous part of humanity, while the children of darkness represent an absolute minority. Mm -hmm. That's how, essentially, he begins his letter. That's the second sentence in his letter to President Trump. <clears throat> and that, to me, sounds, again, very, very Novus Ordo, very Vatican II-ish. Uh, that, uh, you know, most people are, are really good people, and they're all uh, children of light, right? When our Lord refers to the children of light, he refers to those who have faith in him, right? And uh, the children of darkness are those of sin. Well, you know, we're, we're all, in a sense, we're all conceived and born children of darkness, every one of us, because of original sin. This is the church's teaching. And only by grace, the grace of baptism, that we have that light of faith, the virtue of faith enter our soul with the virtue of hope and the virtue of charity. These are the things that make the children of light, the children of light. These are the light of the soul, right? Faith and hope and charity. And for him to suggest that the children of light like outnumber the children of darkness, I mean, even to the point where the children of darkness represent an absolute minority, that is a very novisoro concept. How do you how do you understand that statement of Archbishop Bigano in relationship to our Lord's own statement that Narrow is the way that leads to heaven, right? The eternal life. Yeah. And few there are who take it or follow it. And broad is the way that leads to perdition. And many there are who go that way. I mean, indicating, and the church is uh, teaching throughout all these years too, that uh, the relative fewness of the saved, how could that be? So at the same time, somebody says here, the children of light in the world really are the, are the majority and significant majority yeah. and there's a significant uh there there's a, an absolute minority of people who are children of darkness yeah. it's 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 naturalism it's a form of naturalism yeah. uh that we're naturally good and that there are a number of bad people in the world and there's they're stirring up a trouble out of proportion to their numbers it uh it doesn't really harmonize with the catholic faith yeah no. Okay. Now, I mean, you'd have to ask, uh, how do you mean that? What, exactly what are you saying? Are you talking about politically? Are you trying to say that in the United States of America, that most of the people are really good, law-abiding citizens who want to be good Americans, and there's just a few troublemakers who are stirring up social strife? And I, then I would say that Daniel Bunk, uh, that, that the, the, author's, uh, the author's letter uh, does hit the mark, you know, saying, yes, he's talking, 
politics. He's not talking about, he's not talking faith here. Yeah, yeah. But yet, if you, if you continue reading, <clears throat> he says he's looking at things, well, even in his first sentence, actually, he talks about the formation of two opposing sides that I would call biblical. So his first sentence makes it sound as though he's talking about matters of divine revelation. His second sentence then seems to subvert that whole idea. Mm -hmm. So it's, uh, it is problematic, although I agree with probably 90 plus percent of the things he says here. Um, that, that, that did catch my eye. And it's interesting that uh, our uh, writer here uh, spotted that right away. But, you know, it is this, the first two sentences in the uh, letter seem to be at variance with each other. In fact, maybe it would be worth just reading them out loud so people know what we're saying here, because there are probably many people who haven't read the letter. Uh, Mr. President, dated June 7th, 2020, Holy Trinity Sunday. Mr. President, in recent months, we have been witnessing the formation of two opposing sides that I would call biblical, and that is in a capitalized B and in italics. The children of light and the children of darkness. That's the first sentence. The second sentence is the children of light constitute the most conspicuous part of humanity, while the children of darkness represent an absolute minority. I I don't uh, understand the see. I don't read, I see how those two things. So two sentences go together. I'm sorry, <laughs> but anyway. But uh, for those who haven't read the letter, I recommend they find it and read it. It's yeah, interesting. Yeah. But, uh, like you said, Father, I mean, much of it seems seems very good. I mean, there's just this very clear distinction he's trying to make between good and evil, which is mm -hmm. certainly, definitely a very, very Catholic uh, Catholic concept. And I mean, even in the second paragraph where he talks about the, the separation between the offspring of the woman and the offspring Right. Of, the, of the serpent. I mean, that is. I mean, you you have have used used those exact uh, exact terms many many times. I mean, definitely very Catholic vocabulary there. But um, do you think this not just kind of um, exemplifies what we see in the Novus Ordo a, a lot of times? By there's so many good natured uh, souls in the Novus Ordo who who like you said maybe even have the faith and they there there is so much good in them. There's so much good there. Um, but they're just so misled by so many Novus Ordo um, concepts. It's as though they're still in the, in the Novus Ordo, the New Order fog of Vatican II. Yeah. And, um, <clears throat> you know, that it obscures their vision uh, somehow, leads to contradictions. Yeah. Um, even when they speak of Catholic things, and they speak of Catholic things in a Catholic way, you, you find a glitch that just doesn't work. There's an internal contradiction, and, and it's... It's the fog of the of modernism and of Vatican II, and I I hope that uh, Archbishop Vigano is finding his way through that. Um, but uh, in any case, uh, I mean, as you say, Tom, uh, this is uh, has many strong points. It's really astounding to find a Novus Ordo Vatican II prelate writing such a letter as this. Really. Um, Astounding. And in fact, he's been attacked by a lot of, well, we'd have to say all the right people. Right? He's been attacked by the modernists for writing this. He's been attacked by Jews, Protestants, and Noah Soto 
Catholic prelates, right, for writing this letter. Mm-hmm. Um, so, um, so there must be a lot of truth to it, mm-hmm. <laughs> to what he has to say. And what, what do you think about his conclusion, Father, where he says it is, it is necessary that the good, the children relate, come together and make their voices heard? And that, that second last paragraph here, he says, What more effective way is there to do this, Mr. President, than by prayer, asking the Lord to protect you, the United States, and all of humanity from this enormous attack of the enemy. I mean, I, I think this is, um, again, under Novus Ordo auspices here, but, uh, I mean, it's, this is definitely, again, a very, very Catholic concept. And, and really, I mean, kind of like you said, how many Novus Ordo, uh, would be clergymen speak in this manner? I mean, how, how many Novus Ordo, uh, clergy do you hear say that we need, that we need to pray that the answer to our problems is prayer? Uh, did you find that very striking, Father? Well, I did, but I mean, a Protestant minister, and many have been actually saying the same thing. Um, what I found important, most significant in this letter of Archbishop Vigano is not what he says, but what he doesn't say. I mean, here he says, the American people are mature and have now understood how much the mainstream media does not want to spread the truth, but seeks to silence and distort it spreading the lie that is useful for the purposes of their masters. However, it is important that the good, who are the majority, wake up from their sluggishness and do not accept being deceived. Now, again, the majority of people are good, but how does this coincide with what Our Lady tells us at Fatima about the fact that when these things are punishment for sin, well, is it, I mean, are all the bad people that he's referring to, are, are they the one, they were the sinners and everybody else is the good? The majority are the good people, they're not sinners. And so they're, they're not, you know, factored into the, having responsibility for what's happening here. I would have thought he, he would have said, look, okay, you people out there, uh, you American people, okay, this is happening to our country because of our sins. And uh, we have to reform, okay? And we have all of these evil things that are happening around us, but we also have contributed to that evil in many ways by our sinfulness. And we have to give this up. We have to give up the pornography, right? We have to give that up. We have to reject that absolutely. And um, we have to give up the cursing and the swearing and the blasphemy and the and the entertainment, all this, we, the, the evil entertainment that we're so addicted, we have to stop doing these things and offend God. We have to stop allowing ourselves to be amused, entertained by the things that offend God. I mean, where is that, where is that here? There's, it's like there's a message that is, that is essential that is missing here. And again, I think it goes back to the Novus Ordo, that it, it just cannot or will not see that aspect of things. It seems to say, well, okay, people mean well. And as long as they mean well, they're good people. But where is the condemnation of the abortions that this country is, you know, all of the lives got us curling back into the face of God, moment by moment, moment day by day. Um, so uh, it's not a clarion call to arms to the good people, except to do anything but pray, really. Just to sort of tell the people, you've got to be woke in a conservative way. You've got to be woke in a conservative way and pray. 
but what about uh, actually um, taking action as the enemies of our faith, the enemies of our country are taking action? What is, where is the clarion call to arms for the good people to take to the streets in defending what is right? And I don't mean, you know, taking to the streets with bats and, and so on. I'm talking about uh, fighting the fight with regard to uh, the abortion battle and so on. Uh, one of the sins that cries to heaven for vengeance, right? And uh, fighting the uh, the deviancy, uh, the immoral uh, battle with the uh, well, I don't want to get into too much detail there, but I mean, you know, we went we went over the, the the four sins that cry to heaven for vengeance before, and these things need to be confronted and they need to be addressed in a very practical way by all those who are willing to listen to the voice of the Blessed Mother at Fatima. Um, so I don't consider this to be really a call to spiritual arms in the same way that Our Lady uh, called us at Fatima. Um, so uh, if, uh, I, I find it interesting. I find it remarkable that any Novus Ordo prelate would think these thoughts and write such a letter to a president of the United States. But at the same time, I, I have to find it very disappointing too, because of what it doesn't say. Um, and I'm afraid what it doesn't say is what really matters. Mm -hmm. Father, if, uh, if you were to write a, an open letter to President Trump, what, what would you say? I mean, obviously, I guess the, the force of the close the letter to President <laughs> Trump right here, right now, just off my head. Just in general, you know, I guess you talk about the four sins that cry to heaven for vengeance. Like you say, I guess you would obviously have a, a call to, to prayer as well. What else? Would well, you... it would certainly be a call to prayer, but I'd try to incorporate everything our lady asked for at Fatima, too. <clears throat> certainly, uh, you know, stop offending God by sin. You know, confront them. Our country has to, <clears throat> well, our Lord said when the Holy Ghost came, he would convict the world of sin. And this is a work of the Holy Ghost for those who are, are you know, uh, perpetrators of sin, who are who are offending God by sin. And so this is, I think, the first thing we have to confront our country with is the sinfulness of our country and the um, things that entertain us um, and, uh, you know, our, our, our activities, our broken marriages and, you know, destroyed homes and orphaned children, right? Cast adrift uh, by the broken by broken families and so on. And um, you'd have to call America back to a moral purity, to uh, a moral integrity. And, uh, you know, the, the problem is, you know, in writing to President Trump about that, he's not exactly the paragon uh, that we'd like him to be, right? Yeah. But honestly, I think he would understand it. I don't know if, you know, I, I think he would understand the need for it. Yeah. Uh, I give him a lot of credit, perhaps, in saying so, but I think he would understand and say, well, that is true. That is correct. We've got to do that. Mm -hmm. um, and, I, you know, to say that we're, we've got to mount this, this counteroffensive against the abortionists and the sodomites and all the rest, we've got to do this. And stop being so complacent in our Netflix 
uh, stupor, you know, in the marijuana stupor and all the rest that we've got in the name of the stupors. And um, like a, there's a, an image given in sacred scripture. Uh, a drunk man, you know, rises from his stupor and he he's, comes around to realize what's happening and has to, uh, actually, I think to some extent that is even referred to as though God were to do that. That's how it appears to us, you know. But no, we're the ones who have to do that. So uh, that, that's actually what I wish he, he had said. I mean, can you imagine, though? I mean, even saying what he said here uh, has raised such a storm of, of opposition. Right? If he actually said uh, the full Catholic method message, uh, there would be a firestorm going on right now. But maybe that's exactly what you need. But, Tom, whenever the, the world, whenever the world's been in terrible, terrible peril, in terrible shape. Um, in his mercy, God has raised up prophets, right? You know, the powerful voice of an Isaiah or Jeremiah or Ezekiel. You know, you have a, these powerful voices who stand up and tell the people, you know, thus saith the Lord God, right? And, um, you know, anyone who's looking to... Uh, Archbishop Vigano, there are those who actually, I think, regard him as kind of a modern-day prophet in that sense. But but not not so. I mean, he's not really confronting the Novus Ordo modernists. And uh, he's been steeped in that modernism, unfortunately. And even when he's writing to the president here, he's not really confronting the, the fundamental issues mm -hmm. uh, that the church has been... Uh, and you're told by our Blessed Mother at Fatima, Lord, not so let, and so on. So we, we'll certainly be praying for him. Um, but we, we have to ask God to, uh, I guess in our own day, raise up really a prophet who will be uh, someone who will, who, 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 like Jeremiah's, like faith would be like Flint, that uh, with against the arrows of the enemies, you know, that they would be totally unfazed by the attacks seems like Trump is totally unfazed by the attacks, um, but I don't know that that's because I don't I don't think it's because he's a prophet sent by God. But I mean, honestly, I, I think for what it's worth, and I don't want to scandalize anybody, but I, I think uh, that Donald Trump is like the quintessential narcissistic male. And I think Nancy Pelosi is the quintessential narcissistic female. And I think that's what we see the, the kind of epitomizing these two sides that are going on here, you know. But, um, and oddly enough, I mean, Nancy Pelosi is invoking the name of God in prayer. And so she's praying for president, the president and and, and maybe she is. Maybe she's praying that he rest in peace as soon as possible, for all I know. Uh, but, uh, and, and, but Trump also right, has invoked the name of God. And um, I tend to think, in my opinion, he invokes the name of God more sincerely than Nancy Pelosi does. And that I get the impression that uh, Trump actually means it when he says it in his own uh, way, in his own way, <laughs> yes. Um, but I think in many ways, uh, he is doing 
the work of, uh, I, I think, I think in many ways he's doing things that are pleasing to God, that are right, that are morally right to do. Mm -hmm. And he's not uh, going to back down from those things, apparently. Mm -hmm. Father, one other thing I wanted to get into, you know, Bishop, Archbishop Vigano, he kind of mentioned some of the, uh, the riots that are, that are taking place now in uh, the United States, and I guess globally to some extent. But um, I wanted to get your opinion, Father. There, there's been a lot of uh, a lot of talk, I guess, across the entire nation about this idea of, of disbanding, dismantling, or and defunding uh, certain police departments. I believe even in Minneapolis, where uh, all of this originally started, that, that the city council, I believe even just recently, maybe even today, voted um, with a super majority, I believe, to just kind of dismantle the the Minneapolis uh, Police Department there. And I know there's been talk of this in, in other cities across the nation, perhaps that the same vote has even taken place in other cities, I don't know. But uh, what do you make of that, Father? Just kind of this, this. I mean, it seems to be nationwide, uh, just kind of disdain for the uh, for police force. What do, you, what do you make of that? Well, I think it's very, very clear. They want to eliminate the police because they want to have free reign. I mean, even even now, I understand that just uh, in the last 24 hours, a, a band of Antifa and Black Lives Matter people have taken over six square blocks of Seattle, Washington, declared them like the Capitol Hill free zone or something like that, compelled the residents who, who dwell there to um, declare their independence from Seattle. And they're, they're just setting up their own... Uh, they're seceding from the Union, <laughs> essentially, and setting up their own uh, base there. And uh, so, I mean, this is the, the stuff that civil war is made of. They're barricading themselves in. Uh, they're holding the residents. I, I can't believe that all the residents, they're all on board with it. They're being forced to do this, I believe, many of them, being held hostages. Uh, does this make sense? It's just going to create... Um, more trouble, and this is the this is what they're after. They want to destabilize. Revolutionaries are very good at destruction. That's what they specialize in. Revolutionaries destroy; they tear down whatever is there. They they destroy it. A revolutionary very very rarely does any revolutionary ever have the ability to actually build something of value. All they have the ability to do is to tear down what other people have built, or burn it down. Right, and that's what we're dealing with. We're dealing with people who are are so uh, bankrupt or so devoid of of shall we say virtue that they are capable of building anything. But they consider the great achievement is tearing down what others have built, and these are what these revolutionaries are. Um, now you know there are the, those who are protesting the death of George Floyd. Okay. And there were legitimate protesters who were protesting the death of George Floyd. Unfortunately, uh, the Black Lives Matter uh, rabble-rousers, right? And I call them that because they are, they're fraud. They, they don't really care about black lives. Uh, it's not the point with them because there are many others. There, there are many uh, black people who have been killed by their own uh, looters and marauders and, 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 uh, and, uh, you know, on a rampage about the cities. I think of, um, uh, 
the policeman who was killed, the, the uh, retired uh, police uh, captain, I think it was, in uh, St. Louis, David Dorn. David Dorn. Where are the mourners for David Dorn, right? A real upstanding, a real stand-up man, right? Years and years on the force. Everybody who knew him loved him, admired him. And, um, and, um, and yet he's cut down by some 24-year-old looter, maybe two or three of them, you know, uh, at the in front of the store that he was hired to, to protect, to guard. And why are we lionizing George Floyd? I mean, is this man really admirable? Is this an example we want to hold up to everyone? And 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 not why are we not uh, um, mourning the the passing of a man like David Dorn? Why is he is he less less black than George Eliot? I mean, why does his life not matter? Uh, well, actually, George Eliot's George George Floyd's life does matter, and David Dorn's life matters, and they matter to you, and they matter to me. They matter to our Lord. Our Lord gave His life for them. The Son of God died for them. Uh, but Black Lives Matter is very selective about which Black lives are really important to them, and uh, because they have another agenda. And the same with Antifa. They call themselves anti-fascist. They're not anti-fascists, you know, I mean, it's, socialists, socialism is socialism, whether it's national socialism of Hitler, or whether it's Bolshevist socialism of Stalin and Lenin, it's socialism, right? And um, it's all a form of tyranny. So uh, they're all built on a lie, right from the start, and they, they join forces because they're trying to destabilize this country, because they want to completely tear down all of the structures of our society, and um, they want to uh, set up a, a communist dictatorship, a Marxist dictatorship. They're, they're actively preparing the way for the reign of the Antichrist, I mean, quite simply. Whether they know the terminology or not doesn't matter, they are, in fact, actively uh, plotting and trying to pave the way for the coming of the Antichrist. Simple as that. Um, and getting rid of the uh, police is a big part of their agenda. As, uh, that's uh, a force that could oppose them, it could stop them. Mm -hmm. So, um, I mean, the idea is so absurd to any anybody who wants any law and order in society any, anybody who's not an anarchist would find that to be so outrageously unacceptable that even Joe Biden came out against it. You know, he's trying desperately to uh, get on their good side and to get their support and be supportive of them, you know, uh, justifying what they're doing and so on. But, but, he, uh, but he had to say, no, no, we can't defund the police. Okay. Now, on the other hand, uh, Bill de Blasio in New York says, again, he's pandering to this, this, uh, this crowd. He says he's going to uh, defund the police, not entirely, but uh, he's going to uh, take funding away from the police and direct it to social programs. We see how successful that is. So very successful in New York. Uh, former police commissioner in New York, uh, Bernard Carrick, said that the, he, can, he knows about 600 police officers in New York that are, are in the process of handing in their resignations. Wow. So, um, 
That would be a devastating blow, but I, I suppose the Antifa and, and BLM would be happy about that. Yeah. That's what they want. But it would not be good. And notice these are all happening in Democrat-controlled cities that are deeply in debt, uh, bankrupt in many cases, and where they have no law and order because they don't know how, they don't know the meaning of it. They pander to the, uh, the lawless. They pander to them. And those who want to, uh, you know, follow the law and uh, be good citizens and build, build up America are the ones who suffer under them, suffer the most. So. Well, Father, this has all been uh, rather rather bleak, you could say, but uh, we... No, it's the secular world as yeah. we know it now, but the fact is, uh, it's amazing when you think about it, Tom, it's amazing that with the past history that has gone on here, that uh, we've come this far, and we still have this very solid hope that we do. We still have the ability to sit here and talk about this, and we still have the ability to call for prayer and penance and reform. Um, they, they, the fact that they haven't extinguished the light, that it's still here, you know, the faith is still here, being practiced. After the, the modernist assault on the church and the uh, leftist assault in our society, the faith is still here. And it's thriving in the souls of many good people. And I think that's the key as to why God has not uh, said enough in spite of all of the offenses committed against him. I really do think we still have those ten just, as it were, that would have saved uh, Sodom and Gomorrah. And uh, we are still capable of... of uh, 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 mounting a counteroffensive here, a spiritual counteroffensive. Mm -hmm. So uh, I don't mean it to sound bleak and mm -hmm. unhopeless. It's not mm -hmm. at all. Yeah. The fact that we're here talking about it, mm -hmm. that we can. Thank God we can. Mm -hmm. And Father, in just the last couple minutes uh, we have here, you know, obviously one of the uh, one of the greatest reasons we have for hope, uh, of course, would. Uh, be something that is not bleak, and that would be the uh, the truth that we are about to celebrate this upcoming Thursday, the uh, the Feast of Corpus Christi. So, in the last couple of minutes, Father, could you uh, kind of explain the the significance of that that feast, Corpus Christi? Well, the Feast of Corpus Christi comes to us from the time of Saint Thomas Aquinas. In fact, the prayers, the scriptural readings at Mass, and so on, were actually the work of Saint Thomas Aquinas. Um, he and St. Bonaventure, contemporaries, St. Thomas Aquinas with the Jesuits, with, uh, with, with the, oh dear, with the Dominicans. Dominicans. Yeah, I said. Dominicans and St. Bonaventure with the Franciscans mm -hmm. were commissioned uh, to actually try to, you know, uh, produce the liturgy for the Mass and the Divine Office and so on. And they didn't, they didn't compose in the sense like authors but rather the compost brought together the scriptural readings from divine revelation and the history of the, the tradition of the church and so on to honor our Lord's presence in the Blessed Sacrament. There was an argument that was proposed that, well, on Holy Thursday, each year we celebrate our Lord establishing the priesthood, giving us the Holy Eucharist, and that is really a sufficient celebration. But uh, the Pope decided at the time, and uh, we see how right that is, that 
that uh, Holy Thursday celebration uh, does not uniquely focus in that divine presence in the Blessed Sacrament. Uh, it's that our Lord established the priesthood, gave us the Blessed Sacrament, it's that he, he uh, told of his death, his impending sacrificial death on the cross, and that is the focus. They wanted a feast that would really focus on that continued presence, especially in light of certain heretics who had been attacking that belief in the years, centuries previous. And so uh, the feast of Corpus Christi, the body of our Lord, was established in the um, basically middle 1200s. And uh, we celebrate that with a, a special mass, with an octave. Uh, that is the week following the masses, of, uh, commemorating that uh, great mystery of the, the Incarnation, and the Incarnation specifically as it leaves, as it provides for us the living uh, body of Christ here on earth. The body of Christ, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, crucified, died, buried, risen, glorified in heaven and here on earth in the Holy Eucharist. And um, it um, is celebrated with benediction, also processions. You can even have external altars and have benediction two or even three times during the procession. So it's a very beautiful feast day. Notice that it happens during the month of June a month dedicated to the Sacred Heart of our Lord. And it reminds us that in the Blessed Sacrament, we have the body of our Lord. The Sacred Heart of our Lord is there. That heart that Thomas saw in the open side of our Lord, which he complained, uh, explained, or exclaimed, My Lord and my God, when he saw the open heart of our Lord, that our Lord is alive. And um, so... The, these two feast day, the, 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 the feast day of Corpus Christi, and then you finish that octave, and the very next day is the feast of the Sacred Heart of Jesus, which is like the, the centerpiece of the whole month, okay? And it reminds us that when we receive our Lord's body in Holy Communion, we are actually receiving his Sacred Heart. At the apparition to St. Margaret Mary back in the 1680s, when our Lord actually took his heart and exchanged hearts with her, you know, bringing those two hearts together. That when we receive our Lord in Holy Communion, we're doing that. He's actually placing his heart next to our own. And uh, it's a very beautiful thought and it shows the intimacy of God in wanting to be united with us uh, in this profound, profound oneness that God's love makes possible, and only God's love can make possible. So we thank our Lord for, for enabling us still to have that. And um, no amount of, uh, you know, external tribulation is going to prevent the celebration of that great feast day and this month of uh, dedicated to the Sacred Heart of Jesus. We, we honor our Lord's presence here. And uh, when, when, when our Lord and our Blessed Mother 
talked about devotion to the Sacred Heart of Jesus and talked about devotion to the Immaculate Heart of Mary, the, the, the center piece of that devotion was to be in receiving Holy Communion worthily, right? Praying the Rosary, definitely, absolutely. Meditating on the mysteries of the life and death and resurrection of our Lord in the Gospels, absolutely. Um, prayer, penance, absolutely. But the reception, the repeated loving reception of our Lord in Holy Communion formed the very, very heart and soul, so to speak, of the nine first Fridays and the five first Saturdays. And those two devotions were asked for by our Lord uh, himself and by Our Lady herself in the, the apparitions, their appearances here to holy souls on earth. And we, we really need to devote our, our lives to accomplishing that. You know, Muslims can <clears throat> make the, the, uh, the Hajj and go to uh, Mecca and throw a stone at the Kaaba and, and so on. And that's the height of their, you know, Muslim life and devotion is making that, 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 that. But, uh, our Lord doesn't require that. He comes to us. He comes to us. He comes to the communion rail and calls to us to, to come to Him, you know. And we need to, uh, take that very seriously, very gratefully and take whatever steps we have to, to make that little pilgrimage. <laughs> it's like a pilgrimage to heaven in receiving him in Holy Communion worthily. Mm-hmm. And Father, I think we should um, definitely, you know, speaking of, of Holy Communion and how our Lord comes to us, he does that through, obviously, through through the hands of, of the priest and how the priest consecrates the the, the, uh, the host and the wine into the, the body and blood of our Lord at, um, at the consecration of the Mass. So I think it's definitely important um, to to pray for our priests and you know and to be to be grateful for the fact that you know even with like you said everything going on we still have so many good priests that are that are there in, in the church every first friday and every first saturday ready to administer holy communion to uh to the faithful so i think we should definitely definitely take advantage of that and be very very grateful for that well we should we should appreciate the blessings that we have and that's the only way we can have any hope of God increasing and securing those blessings. Uh, and I, I would pray for Archbishop Vigano, too. I mean, <laughs> he, he has spoken out uh, about evils in the Novus Ordo Church, isn't that about it? But the fact that he's in hiding now, and uh, again, where is the leadership that is really needed now? Yeah. Um, and uh, our prayers are, are sorely, sorely needed for uh, for those who um, are wandering and uh, kind of paralyzed by the Novus Ordo and not know what to do. Um, we need to pray for all these all these souls because, let's face it, our Lord did, in fact, shred his own precious blood for all of that. Right? And God wills not the death of the sinner, but that he be converted and live for... Uh, so, I mean, we, we should be praying for the conversion of all. That's one of the great services of a, of a Christian. That is one of the, I mean, we're looking at the spiritual corpse of, uh, works of mercy that are required of us. So, um, we have to stop sitting. We have to make reparation for 
our own past sins and for the sins of the world now. We have to make reparation for those things. And we have to beg God's mercy on, uh, on the whole world and the conversion of sinners, right? What, what do we pray at the end of Mass traditionally? We, all, we pray for the conversion of sinners and for the freedom and exaltation of our Holy Mother, the Church. Those are the ch this is how the Church has taught us to pray. This is how Christ, through the Church, has taught us to pray, as Catholics taught all these generations, for the conversion of sinners and for the freedom and exaltation of our Holy Mother, the Church. And if there were ever two requests that are so urgent, they, uh, that is now, they are so urgent right now. We should pray those with great fervor. Father, thanks for being here tonight. Absolutely. God bless you, Tom. Yep. Thank you. Thanks to all of our viewers as well for watching this episode of What Catholics Believe. Until next time, we ask that you all remember the words of Our Lady at Fatima, to consecrate yourselves and your families to the Immaculate Heart of Mary, and to pray and do penance. Thank you, and God bless you.